isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ankit Panda, who works at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Ankit is an expert on nuclear proliferation, but he's also an expert on the geopolitics of Asia. And in fact, he has a great podcast you should all check out called Asia Geopolitics. Ankit, welcome. Thanks for having me, Arthur. Right at the beginning of this conflict, there seemed to be a moment where Russia may or may not have done some kind of deal with China, but certainly seemed to have reached an understanding with China. And Russia seemed to have reached an understanding with China about uh, energy exports. But now we're coming into the sixth month of this war. How do you think it looks to China now? I think China is all in on Russia at the moment. Uh, All in in the sense that political backing uh, for Russia is absolute. I do think in the first moments of the conflict, the Chinese did appear to be caught a bit off guard by what Vladimir Putin had done. I don't think that President Xi necessarily walked away after their meeting in early February, when on February 4th, they released that famously long and detailed joint statement on their partnership without limits. I don't think she at that time necessarily anticipated what was coming. But in the months since, I think the Chinese have interpreted, perhaps correctly, actually, that what is playing out right now in Eastern Europe is really a conflict that isn't really over the status of Ukraine and the status of European and transatlantic security, but really a conflict that has serious implications for the future of the world order. And in that conflict, they have chosen, uh, or at least deemed their interests, to lie closer to Russia's than the West's. What is interesting about that is, in some respects, it's easy to understand China's stance, if you put yourself in their shoes, in the sense of being authoritarian states, states that would like to limit the power and influence of the US and and its Western allies. But on the other hand, there are some, uh, for China, I would imagine, some fairly big taboos have been broken by Russia, the question of territorial integrity. So how do you think China is rationalizing some of those complex questions? 
Well, I think some of those inconsistencies and hypocrisy uh, for for China, you know, those aren't new challenges. I think I think you're absolutely right that in in the context of a member of the P5, the UN Security Council, invading a sovereign UN member state that's territorially contiguous to it, uh, some of those issues do indeed come up relating to territorial integrity, sovereignty, and non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. But that hasn't proven to be uh, dispositive in shaping China's reaction. I think China has taken a a more realpolitik calculus here. And when I say China, I really do mean Xi Jinping. He is the, the primary and sole decision maker in many ways for all matters relating to Chinese strategic and uh, and foreign policy uh, on issues of this magnitude especially. And so w- what's interesting is that in the early moments of the conflict, when the talking points hadn't sort of percolated through the Chinese system, uh, you know, you saw statements by Chinese diplomats at the United Nations really hewing to the traditional Chinese principles that have driven Chinese diplomacy for the longest time. But as the Chinese principles guiding China's reaction to the Ukraine uh, invasion by Russia uh, ossified. That sort of focus on general principles gave way to more criticism of the West, uh, a focus on Russian legitimate interests. Uh, And I think that shows how China sort of, I think, reconciled this perhaps difficult hypocrisy that comes with abandoning many long-held principles and and fully embracing Russia. Uh, And of course, there are many other consequences of the invasion, economic consequences, concerns about secondary sanctions. Many Chinese private enterprises, for instance, have actually changed their behavior because they're concerned about getting hit by Western secondary sanctions for doing business with Russia. And so there is a complexity to the Chinese response across the entirety of Chinese society. But at the level of the Communist Party and its leadership, I think what we've slowly seen over the last six months is a calcification of support for Russia uh, and really this idea that China is all in uh, behind Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And there are some obvious advantages, particularly you have to assume that China is getting a great deal on Russian oil and gas right now. That's right. And they're not the only ones, by the way. Right. But I suppose one of the big uh, problems for China is uh, how this looks when you look at the Taiwan issue. So clearly, on the one hand, you could say, well, takes away perhaps some of the taboo around this kind of uh, territorial uh, invasion of a neighbor. But on the other hand, I think a lot of observers look at Ukraine's defense and its ability to defend itself. And then they look at Taiwan, which obviously has this geographical advantage of, of being an island, and then all the same issues about the advantage of a defender of a, with a relatively sophisticated military. And you sort of end up thinking, ah, this may be well beyond China's ability. So what's your feeling about how China uh, on the Taiwan question is affected by the Ukraine conflict? Well, so I think I think the the way you presented that was I thought very fair and honest. Which you know any any observer who tells you they know exactly what Russia's invasion of Ukraine means for Taiwan uh, is probably overstating yeah. uh, their confidence and expertise. So I'll try not to do that. I think yeah. I think both of the scenarios you you laid out are entirely plausible takeaways here from China. I think first it helps to sort of uh, understand what the Chinese have said specifically about Taiwan. Uh, I believe around. March, uh, just a few weeks into the conflict, was the first time the Chinese foreign ministry itself directly connected the Ukraine conflict uh, to Taiwan. And and of course, the, t- the Chinese uh, take was that, you know, this is a completely uh, 
poor analogy for what the problem that China faces with Taiwan. Taiwan is not a sovereign state. It's not a UN member state. Yeah. It's a part of China, which is what the Chinese have uh, have long said. And so they fundamentally, I think, have rejected the political similarities between what Russia did to Ukraine and what the Communist Party may or may not choose to do to China. Uh, that's the other thing, which is that, you know, um, the fatalism around a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, I think, uh, does need to be tempered. Uh, even though Xi Jinping regularly talks about the Taiwan problem uh, and he never obviously takes off the option of military force, it's not something he's committed to. Uh, there's sort of these notions going around that China's committed to invade Taiwan by 2027, uh, which is absolutely just not the case. Um, so China could give itself more time. The other takeaway, though, and I think this is where the geopolitics and the international response around uh, Taiwan is likely to change in the coming years, is I think a lot of countries around the world, you know, non-aligned countries, countries in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, you know, countries that aren't necessarily on the front lines of U.S.-China geopolitical conflict uh, in the way that Ukraine finds itself on the front lines of, of, of West-Russia geopolitical conflict, understand that there is nothing like a regional conflict in today's world when a major power on the scale of a Russia or China is directly involved. And so the secondary and tertiary economic effects primarily of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine stand to be dwarfed by a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And what I think that does is it gives countries around the world who weren't necessarily the most stalwart supporters of an autonomous Taiwan and a status quo being preserved in the Taiwan Strait now understand that any such conflict would have far greater consequences than any invasion of Russia by Ukraine, which, don't get me wrong, has had devastating humanitarian and economic consequences around the world. With a, with a Taiwan invasion, we're talking about really a conflict that could paralyze the entirety of the global economy, particularly the, the high technology supply chains that so much of the world, not just the West, relies on today. Going back to the, the Ukraine-Russia-China sort of triangle, as, as you've said, and, and I, I agree with your characterization, China is all in. But that sort of presupposes, does it not, uh, this kind of great decoupling that we hear a lot about, the idea that that Western, uh, mostly liberal democratic economies will seek to decouple themselves from China. So is that something that's happening anyway, even without the cataclysm of, of, of a conflict over Taiwan? Right. I think, uh, I think, you know, I think that's an important observation. I think the process of slow U.S.-China decoupling uh, has really been underway since uh, 2018 or so, once the Trump administration fundamentally uh, finalized its economic agenda for U.S.-China policy, uh, promoting tariffs, pulling back from uh, technology cooperation with China in particular. So those processes are underway. And I think that's partly uh, another reason that, that China has deemed it in its interests to align with Russia, because if decoupling is playing out anyways, uh, aligning with Russia, a country invading another one, facing international sanctions, massive reputational damage, isn't necessarily seen as, as the worst possible outcome. Uh, in a world where China perhaps still had a greater interest in economic integration with the West and the United States, and even Europe, I think there's been tremendous consequences for how China is being perceived in Europe as a result of Chinese support for Russia. Uh, but that process of decoupling, I think, uh, is is here to stay with us. Uh, and it's something that both China and the West are seeking for, for their own reasons. It's not something that's being driven primarily by one side, in my opinion. China is interested in onshoring and developing uh, its independent expertise in areas like semiconductors. There's more semiconductor foundries that will be built in China in the coming years than in any other country, uh, including Taiwan and the United States combined, for that matter. And so the drivers of decoupling are are, are deeper than the you know the more the simpler narrative that sometimes comes out that this is something that's being entirely driven by one side. 
we're talking here about geopolitics. Geopolitics, by definition, is not about bilateral relationships. It's about the interconnectedness of different countries. Um, China has taken a certain approach with Russia, and of course, India, for different reasons, reasons to do with its its reliance on Russia for its um, defence supply chain, largely appears to have taken a certain uh, position. But you've got some very important rising powers, sort of medium powers, countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, and so on. Uh, looking across the kind of dashboard. Uh, in Asia, where do you see those different players and how they are corresponding to the Ukraine-Russia conflict? Right. I mean, that's a that's a complex question since we do have, as you as you noted, a, a diversity of reactions within Asia. Uh, I think what's been interesting is as the conflict has sort of dragged on over six months, uh, many of these countries are starting to get frustrated with the consequences that they themselves are now bearing with food shortages uh, and and the rise in oil prices. Yeah. India has largely hewed to its position, uh, which, as you noted, is primarily due to a, uh, a, a longstanding legacy defense relationship with Russia and the former Soviet Union. And so um, directly condemning Russia or sanctioning Russia was really out of the question for India, uh, just out of its own national interest from the get-go, mm. uh, even as India has continued to engage with the West uh, on, on issues related, particularly to security in the Indo-Pacific through groupings like the Quad and so forth. Uh, Indonesia, another country that uh, describes itself as, as as non-aligned and in pursuit of strategic autonomy, has also walked a careful line here. Uh, Indonesia will be hosting the G20 meeting later this year, and Russia has been invited. They've also invited Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky to sort of maintain that even-keeled approach. We'll see yeah. if Putin actually travels to the G20. Uh, but that, I think, is, again, um, for uh, for reasons of long-standing um, principles that Indonesian foreign policy has has generally pursued. Around the region, you do have some interesting, um, you know, uh, countries that I would say uh, perhaps you know, surprise the international community. Singapore, uh, I mean, on in, in, the, in the very first moments of the conflict, Singapore, uh, for the first time in I believe forty-four years since they sanctioned uh, the Khmer Rouge government in Cambodia, uh, announced uh, unilateral sanctions on Russia. Uh, and and their reasoning was quite simple and quite elegant, I thought, which was that for Singapore, a city-state, a small country in a difficult world, um, there is nothing that is more important than the principle of sovereign equality between countries and, right. and the principle of non-aggression. So they very clearly saw uh, the impetus to sanction Russia and align themselves with the West. Um, elsewhere in the region, I don't want to go into too much detail, but you know, you have seen uh, Vietnam, for instance, you know, refused uh, to condemn uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, despite having been invaded itself by China in the 1970s, and and broadly now uh, pursuing a rapprochement with the United States, which I think again surprised a few people. But I do think it is for those uh, long-standing reasons and and a broader calculation of its national interest. Um, you know, if I can sort of take a break from maritime Asia, you look at Central Asia, mm. uh, where a country like Kazakhstan, which actually in January 2022, Kazakhstan had invited. Uh, Russian armed forces within its borders to help mollify domestic protests. And of course, once the invasion of Ukraine happened and Kazakh officials began looking at certain things that were being said by prominent Russian state media personalities about the sovereignty of the Central um, of the Central Asian republics, uh, I think it would be fair to say that there was a degree of anxiety about the plans that Putin might hold for for Central Asia in the future. So there is this you know vast complexity uh, of, of uh, and diversity of reactions around Asia. In Northeast Asia, South Korea and Japan have been in lockstep with the West and sanctioning Russia uh, and opposing their uh, total opposition uh, to this war. 
Uh, so really, you look around the region and you see a, a variety of responses. Yeah. And I certainly think that the Kazakh example is fascinating because you've got, um, you, you, you know, you've got a country that was, as you said, basically rescued in January by Russian uh, military support. And yet now there's been talk of pipelines being shut down and effectively Kazakhstan almost ending its strategic relationship or, or the terms of its strategic relationship with Russia. Absolutely right. I think uh, I think the long-term implications in Central Asia, I don't think, have been fully understood. I mean, there's also public discontent with Russia, given uh, the uh, the reliance by many Central Asian laborers uh, on, on overseas remittances paid in the form of rubles, which, mm. of course, in the first months of the crisis, when the ruble was absolutely obliterated by Western sanctions, was, was sort of seen as a general sense that Russia could no longer be relied on as uh, as the the logical center of economic gravity for, for ordinary Central Asians who sought to go to Russia and work there. Uh, so that's also opened up an important opportunity for China in Central Asia, which has been an area where Beijing has been significantly more engaged over the last decade or so. I'd be interested in your your views, uh, p- returning perhaps to China for a bit, in terms of, uh, you know, there, there are various potential outcomes for, for this conflict. And of course, uh, one of them is a, a messy frozen conflict that drags on for years, uh, and and that may be the the best that Russia can hope for, and certainly is a model that Russia has approached uh, other of its sort of peripheral uh, neighbors with. Uh, but there is a version of events which is which is not out of the realms of possibility that we're a combination of NATO support and strategic uh, genius on the Ukrainian side that they managed to effectively defeat the Russians in the field, maybe not in Crimea, but certainly in in the sort of mainland of. Ukraine. Now, if that were to happen, where would that leave China in its relationship with Russia? Because it would, it would perhaps, to the outsider, you you would sort of say, well, you called that one wrong, Xi Jinping. Uh, well, I think, I mean, first of all, I agree with you that that scenario is entirely still plausible. It's not something that we can rule out, and uh, and I think the Chinese are also well aware of this. Um, I mean, just as a as a side note, I imagine that scenario playing out in a way such that Vladimir Putin would still look to declare victory internally to the Russian people. Yeah. I think he would say that the special military operation succeeded in its objectives, even if the entire world knows that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be framed as sort of a, a victory and, and a tactical retreat at that point. And so for, for China, I think, you know, there'd be a more honest assessment of what went wrong. What's been really fascinating is that the People's Liberation Army, which itself hasn't fought a, a real conflict with another state uh, since the late 1970s with Vietnam, um, is is watching this conflict very closely and, of course, has seen the tremendous blunders that the Russian military has carried out. And I think that could also reassess um, you know, the next several years of Chinese cooperation with Russia. Yeah. You know, the word that I haven't used in our discussion today is alliance, because I don't think Russia and China are actually allies or that mm. there's this tremendous amount of political trust. I think this is largely speaking a, a, a marriage of convenience of sorts. Uh, the two countries have shared interests. They have a shared opposition to a Western-led global order. But there has been a long period of mistrust by Russia of Chinese intentions. And in China, I think a degree of caution about whether Russia is is really a, a long-term strategic partner on the level that it currently appears to be. So while their relationship right now is in this place where the two sides are, for varied reasons, cooperating in ways that perhaps to some observers look like allies, they just aren't allies. And so I think in that scenario where Russia is tremendously uh, you know, defeated, Putin sort of retreats with his tail between his legs, and the Russian economy continues 
to recover. Uh, that could be also an opportunity for China economically. China could help uh, to the extent that it can without triggering secondary sanctions. Russia reconstitute various parts of its economy, various parts of its defense industry, which will certainly need to be reconstituted. Uh, so those dynamics, I think, will be will be interesting to watch. And certainly, I think, in any scenario, um, and, well, I shouldn't say any, but in most scenarios that I can imagine um, for this conflict ending, I do think China will be left with the upper hand in the Russia-China relationship. Yeah, that seems reasonable. And and it's it, it feels not implausible that you end up in a place where Russia becomes a kind of economic and resources uh, provider, de- very dependent on on China because it is it has lost access to a huge amount of other potential markets. Absolutely right. Yeah. So, Ankit, uh, one big aspect of this conflict has been the way in which Russia, of course, with its nuclear deterrent, its nuclear arsenal, is treated very differently in the international community than is Ukraine, which famously gave up its nuclear arsenal, albeit uh, I don't think it was that serious an idea that it would have hung on to it. Um, But we're in a period where the US seems to be, in the medium term at least, maybe not under the Biden administration, increasingly reluctant to be the great security provider on the sort of global stage. And there's this kind of reluctance, whether it's in China, South Korea, the Gulf countries, to continue to offer these security guarantees that have been offered for decades. Uh, so with those, with those two factors in mind, the demonstration of the value of a, of a nuclear deterrent and the increasing reluctance of the US to be that security guarantor, what are the implications of this conflict for the, the question of nuclear proliferation? Oh, well, that's that is the big one. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of, I think, important and correct premises to interrogate in that question. I mean, the first one about eroding uh, U.S. credibility, uh, you know, that is a problem that the Biden administration, try as it might, cannot solve for itself because our allies, every country with a treaty alliance has seen what has happened in American domestic politics over the last five years and understands that we will have another election in 2024. And there is no guarantee that Democrats will win that election. And of course, the rift between our two parties uh, since the end of the Second World War uh, has, you know, the two parties have fundamentally different views on this. On the issue of nuclear deterrence in the Ukraine conflict, look, I mean, the lesson that I've taken away, uh, and I'm actually surprised that, uh, you know, some analysts have walked away looking at what's happening in Ukraine with the opposite takeaway, is that nuclear deterrence is absolutely constraining the behavior of both NATO and Russia. You know, Russia is not attacking NATO supply convoys into Ukraine, despite the fact that NATO is pumping the Ukrainian armed forces with equipment that's being used to Uh, maim and kill Russian soldiers. And by the same token, NATO is not establishing a no-fly zone or otherwise conducting strikes on Russian forces. It's it's a lesson that we learned during the Cold War, which was that proxy conflicts, as long as they do not directly draw the two major nuclear-armed superpowers into direct conflict with each other, can be tolerably fought at tolerable levels of risk to the superpower. Right. I'm not talking about tolerable levels of risk for Ukraine or, or necessarily even um, some of the other um, NATO states that border Ukraine, uh, who do seem to have a different risk calculus here and might be willing to take on a greater amount of risk. Yeah. But certainly, I think in Washington and Moscow, uh, nuclear deterrence has seemed to um, you know worked uh, for all intents and purposes. And 
I think it's frustrated both countries, right? I think I think for the West, uh, having a greater room of maneuver to help Ukraine would be something that would very much be uh, welcomed. And I think policymakers don't know exactly where that threshold is, which is why I think we've seen some of these debates about the kinds of arms that might be supplied to Ukraine sort of wax and wane, right? In the first months of the conflict, the idea of supplying Ukraine with, with sort of MiG-29 fighters from Poland was seen as a bridge far to, you know, uh, we can't cross that line because that will certainly lead to significant escalation with Russia. But as things have moved on, uh, you know, those lines have been crossed. The U.S. has given Ukraine now precision strike, ground launched, multiple launch rocket systems and the HIMARS, uh, high mobility artillery rocket system. Um, so these these lines are always moving. Uh, but as long as the two sides don't forget that fundamental lesson of the Cold War about um, the constraining role that nuclear deterrence does have in these kinds of proxy conflicts, I think we'll avoid the worst. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.